don't talk too much. So talk a little bit. You don't eat much, you don't talk much. <laughs> I'm just listening. This is the Just Listening Podcast with pizza artist Eric John. Hello, everybody, and welcome to the show today. This is Just Listening. I am Eric John, and before we get into it, of course, I have to tell you about the best artisan soda in the entire world, Yacht Club Soda. Uh, my friend John Scambato has been running Yacht Club Soda for quite a while now. It's a family-run business. They've been around for over 100 years, and um, man, this stuff is just amazing. Check out all the flavors they have over at YachtClubSoda.com. They've got grapefruit, pineapple, strawberry, grape. They've got blue raspberry, lemon lime, orange cream, root beer, regular cola, diet cola. They've got a wide array uh, of flavors that you can enjoy. And you don't have to live in Rhode Island to enjoy it. Go to YachtClubSoda.com right now. Order yourself. You can mix and match. You can get whatever flavors you want. And John will ship it right to you. So don't wait. Go there right now. Pause the podcast. Go to YachtClubSoda.com. Order some soda. Come back. Listen to the rest of the show. Okay, on the show today, uh, super excited to have this guy on, uh, Dave Benner, uh, who is a uh, historian. Um, he's also uh, very involved in the Libertarian Party. He's actually one of the few people who um, has the keys to the Libertarian uh, National Party Twitter account and uh, often tweets from there. Um, knows a, a, just a ton about early American history. Um, it's one of the best Twitter follows you'll, you'll ever, you'll ever uh, do. Um, so def definitely make sure you follow him. I, I think it's, it's at D Benner, uh, 83 is his Twitter handle. And, uh, he's always got such great historical threads that he's dropping, um, anything from the revolutionary war period up through the civil war. So, um, should be a great conversation. Dave, welcome to the show. Eric. Hey, thanks for having me, man. It's a pleasure to be here. Well, I'm really excited to have you, man. Cause, um, I've been, you know, I've been following you on, on Twitter for a little while, and um, I really, really love your little historical threads that you do um, because, um, you know, there's so much about history, especially early American history, um, that's glossed over. I, I actually, I kind of feel like it's one of the most glossed over parts of our history, which is interesting because you'd think that it wouldn't be. Um, but, man, I've, I've, I've been learning new things about early American history um, pretty much consistently since I got out of, you know, high school. Um, and, uh, it seems like there's always some new thing that I'm learning about it. Um, and you definitely know a lot about that stuff. So I kind of, I want to ask you a little bit about history. Um, but I also want to tie it into kind of what's going on today, um, with the Liberty movement, with, uh, society in general. And, and, you know, maybe we can draw some parallels there. Um, I think the first question though, I want to ask you is, is, what do you what is it you love so much about early american history oh man that's a good question i think that it all started from going down the rabbit hole right because i kind of was kind of growing up as a neocon if you can believe it i've totally reversed that and you know there was a lot that i heard about this era in high school and stuff you hear about really high level stuff maybe the declaration of independence maybe the constitution but there was a lot of stuff that i don't feel was taught properly. And then when I discovered 
you know, some of the firsthand primary sources in college that dealt with the founding period and kind of, you know, exposed some of these myths that had been taught for so long about it. I just, you know, got obsessed with studying it. And then when I discovered Murray Rothbard in 2004, I went down that rabbit hole. He, you know, is a prominent libertarian, you know, primarily an economist, but also a historian. He wrote Conceived in Liberty. And when I followed the, the rabbit hole down that, it just reopened my eyes in so many ways. And um, yeah, I don't know what it is exactly, Eric, other than that when I found that many of the kind of myths that I had grown up kind of knowing were kind of shattered, it really just intrigued me to keep studying it. And I've more or less done history as an amateur historian for about 15 years um, that's not my my job in professional life, but you know that is my passion. Well, I mean, it, it shows it because um, you have an ability to, and, and, and for people listening, um, follow Dave on Twitter because um, the way that you uh, write about these historical events, whether it's a civil war battle or whatever, you you're a very good writer, um, and you're able to talk about historical events in a very concise way but also with a lot of detail um in a way in a way that's easy for i think the lay person to understand which is really important and i think that rothbard especially with his history um uh books um and his, uh, his historical work was really good at doing that um you know whereas and, and with his econ economic stuff too i mean especially compared to someone like mises who um it can be really hard to read um Rothbard is much easier to read. And I, I kind of see that similarity actually in the writing style and the way that you're able to sort of um, to to portray history. Um, what would you what would you say is well, maybe give me give me like a top three. Like, what do you think are the top three biggest myths about the founding of the country? If you could, if you could, you know, the first ones that come to mind. Yeah, I mean, first ones that come to mind, I'll just say, I guess the first one and this one is kind of disseminated by like the 1619 project is that, you know, the founders were all slave owners. They had no care for the slaves. They didn't, you know, particularly think that slavery was morally egregious. And, you know, I just think that can't be further from the truth in so many ways. Like if you just take the committee that drafted the Declaration of Independence, well, it included Benjamin Franklin. He founded the first kind of abolition society in Philadelphia, of which Thomas Paine was a member. I just wrote a biography on him. Thomas Jefferson owned slaves, traded them all his life, but really, you know, was devoutly kind of energized by the possibility of manumitting slaves during part of his kind of tenure as a Burgess and later legislature, legislator for Virginia. Um, manumitting slaves was illegal. So he actually proposed not only a bill in Virginia that was defeated that would have allowed for easier slave manumissions, but he drafted kind of the, the Sinu underpinnings for the first draft of what eventually became the Northwest Ordinance of 1787, which would have prohibited slavery in all of the Northwest territories. Um, Jefferson went to his grave dreading the fact that, you know, slavery had not been rid from Virginia, but he became a spendthrift. He engaged in, uh, not only accumulating debt, but owning debt himself and essentially going bankrupt, not being able to free his slaves, which you, I think you can say, you know, as a per, was a personal flaw, but you know, he was, was very much opposed to slavery 
in the moral consideration. Um, on that committee also was Ro- uh, Robert Livingston from New York. He helped draft a bill in New York to enact a gradual manumission of slaves in, I believe, 1799. Um, Roger Sherman from Connecticut, also on the committee, did the same thing. John Adams, I'm not really aware of much of his position on slavery to speak to that, but that's just kind of a microcosm for the fact that slavery wasn't America's original sin. It existed almost everywhere before. And as I point out in my book, five states during the 1770s and 1780s enacted gradual manumission acts. And this was completely radical for their time. Essentially, Americans disposed of slavery before anyone else. And a lot of people don't really realize that. Um, but that's that's one of them. I'll stop there. But that's the biggest one, I'd say, Eric. Yeah, I mean, people people tend to have a really hard time with Jefferson. And, you know, I think I get why. Um, and, uh, and, oh, and just as, a, as an aside, I can, I mean, I could just, growing up in the Northeast, I can tell you that Adams was um, a, a staunch abolitionist. Um, and, um, but... With Jefferson, I think it is hard for people to understand why, um, you know, if he was so morally opposed to it, why didn't he just free all his slaves? And to me, to me, there's two answers to that. And I'd love to hear your thoughts on it. And you mentioned already the fact that, you know, he was basically bankrupt by the time that he died and, and that that might have played into it. And so I'd love to hear about how that might have played into it. But it seems like you can either believe one of two things. Either he was lying um, when he spoke out against slavery. And I, and I think I remember reading, actually, I think it was in one of your Twitter threads um, about how Jefferson um, wanted to put very strong anti-slavery messaging into the Declaration of Independence, but had to take it out in order to get um, the, a lot of the other Southern states to get on board with it. Um, so you either have to believe he's lying or that there had to be some sort of practical uh, reason why he couldn't. Um you know, or I, or I guess it's also possible that he just was a really flawed guy and just, you know, didn't do some of the things maybe he should have done. So I am curious to hear what your take is on that. Yeah, I actually wrote an article on this called Thomas Jefferson and Slavery, A Twist in the Myth. So absolutely what you said is true about the Declaration of Independence. His first draft for it had a very fiery clause in it, which condemned the king for essentially hoisting the slave trade upon the colonies because during kind of the the Revolutionary War, Virginia had tried to end the practice, actually, and it was vetoed because the king withdrew his royal assent from it. Um, Yeah, like you said, Jefferson could have manumitted his slaves, but by doing so, he would have put all of his posterity in kind of financial jeopardy. And if he had done that, you might have been hearing, well, you know, Thomas Jefferson, you wouldn't be hearing about him as the slave owner. You'd be hearing about him as the financial family wrecker. Um, or something like that. So he had his follies with money for sure, but I think he very well would have manumitted them if he didn't, although he did free the Hemings children, uh, which you may know. And also, you know, John Dickinson manumitted his slaves, George Washington manumitted his slaves, John Randolph of Roanoke manumitted his slaves. And you just never hear about this stuff in any kind of public school curriculum that I, I see at least. Why, why do you think that is Dave? That, that, that it's not more you know, that that version of history, which, again, if you, you know, as, as you've studied very extensively, a lot of the, the firsthand sources, which are the ones that matter, um, you know, describe this stuff pretty clearly. Why, why do you think it, that is? 
Yeah, I think it, it's at least partially deliberate, and I think it's partially because cultural Marxism has such a mark on society. And by that, I mean there is a movement out there to tear down remnants of our past that make Western civilization what it is. I mean, the good parts of it, the things that emphasize individual liberty and um, you know individual rights and limited government and federalism and decentralized government. There is a concerted attempt to rip those things down by finding one thing you find condemnable about like the figureheads of those ideas. Right. And just, you know, kind of eradicating everything else they may have done well because of that fact. Um, And I think part of it is just because the curriculum is determined by bureaucrats and there's not really much of a vested interest or incentive structure to make it seem as if, you know, the answer to all of society's problems isn't bigger government, more intrusive government. So I think it's partially uh, deliberate and partially because of the nature of, of government and its uh, curriculum forming. Do you, do you think, I mean, is it possible that some of it too, as opposed, you know, in addition to some of it being uh, deliberate, which I, I tend to agree with you for sure, um, is it possible that there's also sort of a political overreaction to um, maybe decades and decades ago, um, you know, the, the history sort of glossing over some of the realities of slavery sort of in the opposite direction? And so... There's sort of this overcorrection in the other way that where finding the, the real actual truth of the matter is um, is hard because there are these overcorrections in, in one way or another. Um, you think that's part of it, too? Yeah, I mean, that could be part of it, too, Eric. I wouldn't doubt that. I think that would be a fair minded thing to, to say, though. I would say, you know, I'm 40 years old and I've I've never been in a time or place where like slavery was ignored. Like that's always been a part of every curriculum. I grew up in a public school, graduated from a public high school, went to a public college. Um, but so I, I think like that, that subject has never essentially been omitted or been like glossed over, but maybe for some people it has, but you're right. Maybe some of it is kind of an overreaction and the truth is somewhere in the middle. And that's kind of our jobs as historians to kind of look at the past and see the narratives in which history has been taught and, you know, correct them. Historians call it revisionism. And when people hear that term, they hate it because they think it means some kind of like Stalinist re-education camp. But really, a great historian takes things from the past and corrects the mistakes of past historians. And that's actual revisionism that I embrace. Yeah, I mean, and, and to your to your point, the movie 1776, for anyone who hasn't seen it, um, you know, came out in 1972. And that movie is... The whole movie's about slavery. I mean, this, you know, and so this is, and this is, you know, fifty years ago. So, um, you know, so I, I tend to agree with you um, that that a lot of it is sort of uh, based on the the cultural Marxism that you're talking about, and that clearly, especially in academia, there's a lot of that. Um, what do you think? Now, one thing I wanted to ask you about is sort of bridging what was going on in, in early America with the revolution. And um, you had posted something, I think even, I think it was earlier today, actually, um, you know, about how the Americans revolted against Great Britain over a 3% tax on tea. Um, and here we are between all of the taxes that we pay. Most of us are paying 50% of our paychecks into taxes and we're kind of just going along to get along. Most of us, um, so I'm curious, what what do you think is different 
about culture, society, maybe the politics of the time um, to where, you know, that sort of revolution um, seems to be almost unthinkable today. Yeah, as far as taxation goes, and you're right, I tweeted that out actually out from the Libertarian Party account. But yeah, I mean, it would have been totally unfathomable for the founding generation to endure any kind of income tax, right? The, the very idea of an income tax was so you know beyond the consideration of that time because all of the taxes that kind of Americans paid were indirect kind of taxes on trade. And, you know, when Brita, the Great Britain wanted to tax them directly for the first time through the Stamp Act, it, it caused a revolt. And then, you know, you got the tea tax later and the, the Tea Act of 1773 actually um, kept the tax at three cents a pound, but it also granted a monopoly to the British East India Company. They revolted over that. The Sons of Liberty did, obviously. But I, again, I think it's gradual through precedent, Eric. So, you know, we had that for a while. And then civil the Civil War, you got your first income tax. It only affected a small amount of people, and it was kind of temporary for a time. The feds tried to resurrect that in the late 19th century. The Supreme Court struck it down. And, you know, then we got the, the 16th Amendment in 1913. And that was sold on the basis that this would only tax a very few, a very small percentile of Americans on, you know, their, not not even their labor, but on their, um, their uh, profits. And since then, it just expanded. Government, like, never backs down from territory it grabs. And even when it's not legal, legal, it expands its prerogative. And that's what's happened since then. So I think it's we've been gradually conditioned like dogs to just accept it. This is the way the world is. And most of the world is, have adopted some form of income taxes. So, you know, I think it's gradual encroachments that, and people don't have a, a conception of, you know, why that is so immoral. Yeah, you really can't underestimate the power of the sort of the boiling frog theory, right? I mean, the, the idea that, you know, that we do just kind of become accustomed to things. Um, and, uh, you know, and one thing that's sort of interesting about the whole COVID regime, and I think one of the reasons why there actually was a pretty sizable resistance to it, um, even at the very beginning, and obviously it grew over time, but it was almost sort of like too much too fast. Like I, I feel like had they had they, you know, worked these sort of measures in little by little, you know, maybe over the last 20 years with, you know, the the, the bird flu and the Zika virus and stuff. I, it, I almost wonder if it, you know, would have been easier for them to steamroll over the entire country the way that they did. Um, so I think that that's a really great point that you make. I want to come back to this in a little bit about. Um, you know, thinking about 200, almost, almost now 250 years ago and today. Um, but before we do that, I, I do want to talk to you about Thomas Paine. Um, I was just watching something about Paine today, actually, because I knew I was going to be talking to you and I'm sure it was very boiled down. Um, but one thing I thought was interesting about Paine, and maybe you can expand on this, which would be amazing if you could do that is, um, that he was he was very much unlike a lot of the other founders. He he pretty much came from absolutely nothing, um, and that he was kind of a, a failed businessman uh, before he came to America. Um, talk talk a little bit about Thomas Paine because I think he's a really fascinating figure, um, and I think what he ended up writing um, 
really ended up changing things a lot going into 1776. So talk a little bit about who was Thomas Paine? What kind of guy was he? Where did he come from? Uh, And then I want to ask you specifically a little bit about common sense. Yeah, no, you're absolutely right about Paine. And that is one of the most fascinating things about him is Paine was the common man. He wasn't an American aristocrat like Jefferson or Madison or Washington born into like a lot of wealth, especially the first two were. Um, But Paine was born as a middle class artisan in eastern England, and he was expected to take on his father's business. His father was a stay maker. Essentially, he built the kind of structural underpinnings to women's corsets. And uh, he took that up for a while. He kind of failed at it. Um, also in his youth, he, he actually dabbled in privateering where he looted vessels of the French on behalf of the British government, uh, ostensibly through a private public, um, relationship where the ship was actually owned by an individual. Uh, privateering was actually pretty common in the, the 18th century. Not at all today. Um, he was also a tax collector for a while for the British crown. He was an excise officer. In fact, his first article was, kind of a list of grievances that his fellow excisemen had against parliament to try to improve their working conditions. So Payne was a failure in almost every aspect of his professional life until he picked up the pen. That's how I put it in my book. He moved to America on the endorsement of the most popular person in the world at that time, Benjamin Franklin, and having Franklin's endorsement would be akin to like having Elon Musk's endorsement today. So yeah, he was very much unlike the other founders, built born into little wealth, um, always had a concern for poverty of individuals. He was a radical in almost every way, not only politically, but also religiously, architecturally. He became a bridge builder later in life and um, in almost every facet of his life. And that's why he is, he's so great. He was born in Thetford, England, lived some of his life in Lewis. And then once he moved to America, he mostly lived in and about Philadelphia, sometimes in New York, and he also bounced between England and France um, in the 1780s and beyond. Now, I have to ask you, because I mean, I know that Franklin spent the majority of his time in, in London uh, prior to around 1775, 1776. Um, but how, how did someone like Thomas Paine become linked up with Benjamin Franklin? Yeah, that's such a good question because that pairing just did not make sense by any measure. I mean, at all at the time, because Payne was at a time in his life where he's unsure about what he wanted to do. But one thing that he seemed to become good at was conversing with other people, sharing ideas and networking. And that's what he did in London. And it was through several kind of degrees, I guess, of friends that he was able to gain an audience with Franklin. And for whatever reason, we don't know much about it, but he at least impressed Franklin enough to think that he could, uh, procure a job. And the, the note Franklin wrote is very general. You can see it today and it doesn't really, you know, recommend him for any specific profession, but shortly at when he, after he came to Philadelphia in 1774, he became the editor of a leading Whig paper in, in perfect timing. This is just when kind of the Imperial crisis with Britain was heating up and uh, pain by the time that time already had kind of pro Patriot sensibilities. He was, he had become a Whig, a kind of British radical Whig. Um, the Whigs were a party in Britain that vied with the Tories for many years, but Payne very much empathized with with the Americans in that that struggle. And Common Sense was really the first big writing he did on 
that conflict, but there were sprinklings of other writings that really kind of tipped his hand that he, he was pro Patriot before that too. Talk a little bit about common sense and, and, you know, the idea that, um, you know, pain seemed like he was really able to do something that the other leaders at, at the time really hadn't done up to, up to that point, especially in just, you know, with most of their writings about, taxes and the you know all the unfair practices of Great Britain what what was it about common sense that really grabbed the sort of general public um en masse oh that's such a good question it's because it was so digestible and accessible to the common man that's the simplest way of putting it because the main ideas in this conflict with Britain were mostly confined to a debate between American aristocrats on one side and royalists on Tories on the British side, mostly, right? But Payne boiled down these these arguments into a way that really connected with the common man, not only the way in which he laid his arguments out, but also the fact that he used like a very specific kind of dialect in the book that is known as vulgarity. And we when we think of that term now, we think it's like being profane or swearing, but it actually just meant that he used a colloquial sort of tone that like construction workers, for instance, might use today rather than like businessmen. And, you know, his arguments were very radical and they were written at a time when many people still wanted a total reconciliation with Great Britain. In fact, um, <laughs> the American Continental Congress sent uh, King George III the Olive Branch petition, which essentially called for that. It essentially acknowledged the legitimacy of the crown and asked the king to intercede against parliament to try to, you know, satisfy this, um, reconcile, but pain, you know, he said that traditional rights were naturally bestowed. They preexisted government. He wasn't the first one to say that, but that, um, was pretty radical compared to what some people thought. He thought that legitimate government depends on the consent of the governed. You see how we get that in the declaration. He wrote it there before that. Um, he said that the incendiary British policy toward the colonies not only violated their colonial charters, but the British constitutional system itself, which he thought it was a farce because it was built upon Norman conquest, um, and that the British claim to bind the colonies in all cases whatsoever was tantamount to slavery. Um, he also said that, that King George III was a royal brute and that the British royal line was derived from a bastard foreigner. That was William the Conqueror. Um, and the two things that come in the conclusion of Common Sense, which were the most influential, was one, that a free people could withdraw from any illegitimate government. And that kind of government that was illegitimate ceased to possess the ability to demand compliance of the people. And that Americans should set up Republican governments with written constitutions and enact what he called a continental charter. Well, this was kind of the antecedent to what became, you know, a written constitution. So there's many radical ideas and he spoke, he wrote them in a way that appealed to the common man. Yeah, you could, I mean, you could almost argue, um, and I won't make the argument, but you could almost argue that the, that the declaration of independence is, is almost a complete ripoff of common sense in a lot of ways. Um, um, you know, especially especially the part about you know throwing off the chains of an oppressive government um, and having the right to do that, um, especially. And I think it's so great too what you said about vulgarity. You know, I'm I'm a huge proponent of it, um, which is which is not in, in line with many of my fellow Quaker friends, <laughs> um, but I agree with I agree with you about vulgarity. I think, um, and I think a lot of words that used to be profane 
um, legitimately were sort of seen as profane have, have become sort of almost merely vulgar, um, you know, used in conversation so regularly that, I mean, I hear people at the drugstore using certain words that um, I don't even want to use on the podcast because then I have to say it's explicit, even though I don't really think that it is. <laughs> um, but it's that's how common it is, you know, and, and I think there is a lot of power in using the vernacular that the average person can understand. I, I think we saw a lot of that with Trump, too. Um, you know, he dropped a few vulgarities here and there. And, and, and generally speaking, uh, average everyday people loved it. Um, you know, it, it was very effective. Um, and I, I think you can't understate the, the importance of that. And I, so it, is, there's a reason why common sense is every school kid's favorite piece of writing that they read in, in whether it's middle school or high school or whatever. It's just it, it, it just has that special quality that sort of it gets to the heart of the matter. Yeah. None of um, the other founders wrote like that. Like, it's just very distinct. Yes, exactly. That, and, you know, it kind of, again, just drawing a parallel to today, um, you know, it is sort of the difference between someone getting up there, let's say, in a debate and talking about the tax code or um, tax rates or even foreign policy in a way that's, that's very technical. Um, and then someone like a Donald Trump getting up there and talking in a, in a way about these things that that people actually, it's the way people actually talk and think, sort of the average person actually talks and thinks. And um, yeah, that it, it sort of, I, I, would, I wouldn't say Thomas Paine is the Donald Trump of his day, but, um, but, you know, maybe the Dave Smith of his day, you could say, you know, I think that's why Dave's so effective in what he does, because he talks in a way that that's very accessible to the average person. Absolutely. Um, Talk a little bit about the, the importance of religion, too, at the time. Um, you know, one of my favorite revolutionary era phrases is appeal to heaven right uh, the idea John that Locke. oh it, it the idea that you know there's a higher court that that you can appeal to um than just your the state court right like that god is the ultimate authority what what importance did that element of the culture do you think play into the fact that people were willing to you know pick up arms and march to Lexington or Concord and, you know, risk dying over this stuff. Yeah. Well, Payne grew up Quaker, um, as did a few others, uh, like Nathaniel Green. We talked about kind of off this conversation. Oh, yeah. Yep. <laughs> but uh, John Locke was really kind of the figurehead of the revolution, if there ever was one among the political class. Um, people that supported the patriot position in the revolution pretty much drew most of their main arguments about government and its role from the two treatises on civil government. And like you said, and alluded to, I should say, um, Locke said that, you know, when all attempts to exhaust, um, you know, a peaceful reconciliation and individual rights are through only an appeal to heaven remains. And I think Payne really believed that. And he wrote about that. He was very well versed in the scripture and actually coded many of his arguments in his writings um, with religious justification, including in common sense. You can even see where he says that, well, you know, the Jews learned that God did not want them to have a king because they clamored for a king and he gave them Saul. <laughs> so um, Payne was really familiar about that uh, with that of course as many people probably know Payne grew to be a deist um and i think that there's evidence that he had come to this conclusion by about the 1780s though he didn't start writing about his religious beliefs until 
um, the 1790s in the age of reason, which he originally envisioned to be a three-part book, but eventually became a two-part book. Um, this in within, he basically laid out what kind of became the most famous deist creed of his time. And deists are, were those that believed in a singular God, but they didn't believe in any kind of, you know, uh, miraculous intervention with the world. They believe that the the creator was a clockmaker who essentially built the world and left it developed, you know, of its own volition. He believed that um, you could see God's love for humanity and nature. And really his duty was to kind of treat his fellow creations well. Um, so Payne abandoned his Quaker sensibilities, but and he became a total pariah later in life because of his religious beliefs. They had very few people at that time in the midst of the Second Great Awakening, pro- probably the you know the biggest boom in Protestantism in American history at that time. So, hope that helps. Well, absolutely, and I and I, it's hard not to think that you know maybe one of the reasons that society in general is is so complacent is because the state has very in in almost every way replaced um you know has replaced god as the ultimate authority in in most people's lives um you know and 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 look a lot of the reason that um you know a lot of these revolutionaries didn't look to at, at king george like a divine figure is because of the protestant reformation and the idea that you know that a human being like King George isn't God, right? Whereas before that is, you know, the Kings were, were seen as divinely appointed and all that stuff. Um, and now you'd almost think like, you know, the, the way people look at presidents is very much like the way people used to look at Kings and Queens, um, you know, before the Protestant reformation happened. It's so, it's so bonkers. If you think, if you think about it, right, it's, it's crazy how things kind of go back and forth and how cyclical all these things can be. Um, you know, one thing that I've thought about for a while now, um, and I've been a libertarian, I would have called myself a libertarian anyway, um, since around 2008, probably, you know, those, those first, that first Ron Paul campaign. Um, and you mentioned coming sort of from the neocon angle, which honestly makes a ton of sense to me because, um, you know, during that time, I mean, it was, it, you know, with 9-11 and everything, especially, uh, it was a very powerful force. Um and I came sort of from the other direction. I was very liberal. I would have considered myself a socialist um, before, really, honestly, before hearing Ron Paul. I mean, it's pretty amazing the effect that he had on on me and a lot of people. Yeah. Um, but one thing I've thought for a long time now, um, and you know, it's kind of one of the reasons I'm not officially involved with the Libertarian Party, and and you know, there's other reasons, but. It just feels like to me, and I, I want to hear your thoughts on this, because um, if people don't know that Dave is very involved with the Libertarian Party, he's also one of the people who tweets from the Libertarian Party Twitter account. Um, it's funny you mentioned that that was the Libertarian Party account that you sent that tweet from, because I, I, I knew it was you who wrote it, <laughs> because just because I know you're writing so well at this point. Um, but, um, you know, it, 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 occurs to me, it, it occurred to me for a while that is there is there a political solution to the sort of tyranny that that us libertarians feel is is so out of control? Um, is it even is it even possible anymore? Yeah, I mean that's such a that's such a big question, right? I mean, and it's and I'm not trying to be blackpilled here about no. this. I'm just I'm just I'm just from a practical standpoint. I'm wondering what your thoughts are. Yeah, when it, well, what what I can say is this that. 
in many times in human history, populists have been blackpilled into believing that, you know, the, their tyrannical government is all they have. They have to endure it. It's a fact of life. And then for whatever reason, that tyrannical government folds. Sometimes it's because of revolution. Sometimes it's because of like usurpation. Um, but that is, that's just the case. And what I do know and what gives me hope is that people in the past, you know, the founding era probably being the best example of this, there were people willing to fight and die for their, their rights um, if necessary. Now, I hope that that comes about peacefully. And I know that, you know, Quakers rest a lot of, of like very much emphasize peace and, uh, you know, lack of violence and maybe not all, but my understanding is that that's the case. Um, but I mean, what, what can I say? I believe that, you know, radical decentralization is the way, even when you live in a tyrannical system, you can't say that the States haven't successfully stood up against, you know, marijuana prohibition. They're just not, they're not sending the tanks into Washington or Colorado. And those states are basically standing up and openly and brazenly defying that. Now, if th those kind of strategies are applied to other things like, you know, gun sanctuaries and, you know, uh, thwarting the Federal Reserve through, you know, local bullion um, depositories and Bitcoin and stuff like that. I do think inroads can be made and technology might be the thing that that undermines the state ultimately, because, I mean, you just can't say stuff like Uber and um, 3D printing and, you know, ride share programs and and things like that ha have undermined the state and its lobbies in many ways. So I do think there are ways, you know, at the Libertarian Party, we emphasize not only these single issue coalitions, but also electing people at the local level that can nullify. Like you would be very surprised how much power like a local city councilman has, a sheriff has, you know. Um, people in those kind of positions that really can stand up if they have the cojones to do it. So to answer your question, I do think there are ways to do it. I don't know that there's a silver bullet, but I think there is hopeful or means to be hopeful. Yeah. And like, and like you said, especially on the local level, right? I mean, I, I tell people this all the time. I mean, most most zoning boards, you can you don't even need to run for. Like if you just know the right person, they'll you can just get on it. Right. And I mean, a zoning board is when it comes to property rights is is pretty important. Right. Um, so, yeah, I think you're right. You can have a big impact, especially locally. Um, I wanted to read a tweet that was sent out. Um, it was by the Mises Caucus account. Uh, and for those of you listening who don't know, the Mises Caucus is a uh, faction of the Libertarian Party uh, and that is now sort of in the majority. It's it's sort of taken over the party um, in the last couple of years. Um and uh, so I wanted to read this, and then it was retweeted by the Libertarian Party's official account. Um, it says, your heritage is revolution. And I'm thinking you might have wrote this, but I'm not sure. <laughs> it says, you are the sons and daughters of seditionists, terrorists, and enemies of the state. Your ancestors did not wait for a court to defend their rights based on words inscribed in an old document. They took up arms and claimed their liberty violently. Um, and then there's an image here, uh, along with the tweet that says, we possess over 400 million firearms, ammunition, body armor, night vision, communications, and outnumber the states and forces uh, by 10 to 1. Um, so the reason I read that and, and the reason I, I want to get your take on this is, you know, it's, it's politically speaking, it would be suicide, <laughs> to call for a violent uprising, right? Um, 
but it's happened many times before. And of course, and, and obviously personally as a Quaker, I'm totally against it. Um, but for religious reasons, not for practical reasons or for political reasons, um, you know, so it's, it's, again, it sort of makes me wonder, is that like, you know, on a practical level, is that something that the libertarian party, um, could ever actually espouse? Um, and is there a point where that becomes the only option? And again, I'm talking just from a historical perspective and from a, a practical perspective and a theoretical uh perspective um you know i'm just you know because i think these conversations are kind of important in terms of talking about what's possible and and what what are we really talking about here when we talk about resisting the government yeah so just first off i did not write that tweet that i've never written a tweet from the mises caucus account i did retweet it but i'll just say that there is some internal discussion about that tweet and ultimately we, oh really okay that's interesting it. I, I don't agree with unretweeting it, but it didn't cause like a huge kerfuffle. But I think it's right. I think it's defensible on the basis that libertarians are not innately opposed to defensive violence. And it and it all comes down to the individual if you think that this cause is, is just that you have been aggressed upon to a point where that's the only the only recourse. And I think every libertarian has to answer that for themselves. Um I'm not calling for a violent uprising. It's not something that I want. I want a peaceful resolution. So whenever we talk about like national divorce, we try to make sure that it's at least implied that we want to go about this peacefully. We want there to be some kind of peaceful reconciliation where bygones can be bygones. People go their separate ways. Um, but ultimately, I do believe, as Jefferson and Locke and Sidney did, that um, the people have a right to uh, alter or abolish their government. And if it comes down to guns, I do I do believe in the moral case for that. But I don't hold anything against for fellow libertarians that believe differently. In fact, I don't think that there's anything incompatible about being a pacifist and being a libertarian. Um, so that's just my thoughts on it. And and that makes total sense to me. And that, that is interesting to hear that there was some sort of internal discussion about it because it did it kind of hit me when I read it. I was like, wow, that's actually that's pretty that's pretty strong language. Um, you know, and, and not from a critical perspective. I'm not saying that. I'm just saying it was I thought it was very interesting. Um, you know, and one thing about the the founders, like you already talked about with the with the olive branch um message that was sent to King George, uh, that the the powers that be in America at the time, right, were they were seeking a peaceful resolution to what was going on the entire time, um, even as forces were fighting each other in, in um, Lexington and Concord, I believe. Um, you know, it, this is before independence was voted on. Um, and correct me if I'm wrong, you know, the, the war really didn't start in earnest until uh, until the Brits sent over like 30,000 troops or whatever on ships uh, into New York. Um, so, you know, in a, in, in a way, I, you know, I think um, you're right about the defensive the use of defensive uh, violence. Um, you know, I, uh, as a Quaker, you know, I would stand against it. Um, but one thing I've always said is, I would never impose my own pacifist beliefs on someone else. I think that that would be wrong. Um, and I think, like you said, I think that, you know, everyone has to make their own decision. And then, you know, from my perspective, that's something that they they can take up with God later on. It's not, it's not for me to say you shouldn't do this or you shouldn't do that. And, and 
especially when you're coming from a defensive posture. Um, but do you, I mean, do you see just culturally speaking, any similarities between what was going on in, you know, you know, between 1770, 1775, um, and what's going on today? Because I, I do feel like I see a, a resurgence of the liberty movement in the last couple of years, um, you know, similar to kind of what it was like in 2008, 2012. Yeah, that's such a good question. It's so hard to pinpoint the parallels. I think the, the way in which I see it most is I'll say it this way, is that I wouldn't say that there's necessarily a huge libertarian resurgence, though I do believe, you know, Ron Paul was the catalyst for so many more people you know, understanding the core tenets of it. But what I will say is I do think there's been a resurgence of kind of dissident beliefs. You have independent media podcasters and such that some of which, you know, get audiences that are so much bigger than cable news. The legacy media is dying. And I think that's really a a good thing. It's cause for celebration for all dissidents, not only libertarians, but you see kind of figures on the, kind of uh, the distant left and the distant right kind of actually having their views out there for really the first time in, in us history, since I would say like the, the 19th century, because people don't realize this, but the press used to be like way more partisan than it even is now. Um, but anyways, the, the, like the Tim pools of the world, the Joe Rogan's, the, um, the, the Lev Friedman, um, all these people have big shows that really get like voices out there that would have been totally suppressed in the past. So in that way, I think there is kind of some connection, but I wouldn't necessarily say that there's a libertarian resurgence. But the, the last thing I'll say about this is the one other thing that I really always take note of is how acceptable it even is to talk about national divorce now compared to say 10 years ago i started writing articles for like the 10th amendment center about 10 years ago and i'll just tell you that the phrase national divorce would have never been uttered on any mainstream news network at all and here just last year i think marjorie taylor green tweeted about it and tons of people responded to it like that is that's huge to me you know, I, national divorce is such brilliant marketing. Was it was it Michael Bolden or was it Michael Malice who first coined that? Malice term, takes think? credit for it. I don't know if he's the first, but I think I I, I have reason to I believe like he Bolden may have been have. the first. Yeah, it's such brilliant marketing because everybody can understand divorce, right? Everyone can, you know, if if in, if you say secession, everyone thinks the Civil War and slavery. But if you say national divorce, you know, people think about their cousin or their aunt or their own parents. You know. Um, it's brilliant. And I, I do think it has, th- that idea has caught on and it just makes too much sense, you know? And when you talk about podcasters today, it's hard not to see the parallel from, at least from my perspective, between a Joe Rogan, right? And a Thomas Paine, someone who speaks the vernacular of the average person compared to the likes of a, you know, Lawrence O'Donnell or a <laughs> Don Lemon, right? Who, who they talk and people don't even know what they're saying, right? I mean, there's, there's obviously a smaller segment of the population who will watch shows like that today and you know it speaks to them but it's not the masses um by any means and uh it's sort of like you know it's like these podcasts being out there in the internet it's it's like Payne using the printing press um and and distributing his pamphlets all over all over the colonies while the uh, established newspapers of the time you know the loyalist newspapers are printing their sort of standard whatever uh, and pe- people could probably care less. They're 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 excited about this pamphlet that they're reading, you know. 
Um, so one of the, one of the last things I want to ask you is, um, as far as the libertarian party goes, um, what, what do you think is the, personally is, is the best strategy going forward for, for the party? Um, and like I said, I haven't been involved in the party in a, in a long time now. I was involved with the Mises caucus, full disclosure, um, very early on when it first started, um, for a little while. Um, uh, but I'm curious, it is, it is an important entity, uh, in the Liberty movement. So I'm, I'm curious what your personal thoughts are on what you think the best tact is for the party. Well, I'm kind of an all, all of the above kind of guy. So I believe that local elections especially are tangible and can bear fruit. So what I mean by that is that we should, we should have a presidential front runner. He's kind of the banner waiver. He's going to get people, um, you know, educated on our beliefs, the one that can get on the biggest platforms possible, like Joe Rogan, Tim pool, what have you. But other than that, we should really concentrate on encouraging our fellow libertarians to run for these very local level seats where not only are they winnable, it's just not true that libertarians can't win those they can, but also, um, you know, focus on those places where they can nullify. It's also to educate the populace. So many people don't know what libertarianism is. I just do not believe those that think that the populace has understood libertarianism and has consciously rejected it. If you ask someone on the street, I just don't think you'll find that many people that are familiar with our ideas. So it is helpful to educate because politics is downstream from culture. And, you know, when we win some of these political arguments, the electoral results will naturally follow. And it is single issue coalitions. And this is kind of like the cornerstone of my beliefs is that, you know, with the 10th Amendment Center and some of these um these organizations that build these single issue coalitions within states, you don't have to have a single libertarian in the legislature, but you can actually pass tangible, substantive libertarian policy by getting, you know, odd bedfellows together for a common cause. Just drop whatever you think about economics to work with the left on drug war issues and drop everything you think about, you know, you might think about immigration or, or things like that to work on the right, right for firearm sanctuaries. You can actually do this without having libertarians elected. You just have to concentrate on the issues and, and build those coalitions, get that legislation in locally. We've seen that on guns. We've seen it in Missouri recently. Now this is, I think the federal courts have tried to strike that down, but you know, they're just not being able to enforce a lot of, you know, th these people that buck the, the firearm restrictions. So um, those three things, Eric, I hope that helps clarify. Oh, yeah, absolutely. And I totally agree with you. I, th I think you're right. I think it has to be a multifaceted approach. Um, why do you think most people, um, not, not even to the level of running for something or getting involved, right, or getting involved with an organization or trying to get something passed, but why do you think so many people have a hard time even even speaking out or, or, or even um, articulating uh, the message? I think a lot of it comes down to fear of reprisal. Um, you know, we have a lot of evidence that, you know, people that speak out on some things do get fired from their jobs or are scared of it. I think that, you know, Trump's election shows that there's a huge silent majority 
or there was at one point that really believed in some of the things he said. I mean, I'm not a fan of him at all, but the fact that you don't hear anyone espousing like Trumpian talking points in in your jobs, for instance, at least in the corporate world, I've never heard that. But the fact that the guy got elected like that disconnect, you know, speaks volumes to me. So I think, you know, people just don't want a reprisal that will affect their and their family's lives. And I totally understand it. I'll just say, you know, in my professional life, I don't really speak up about my political beliefs on the job um, for that reason. So I think that's a, a big part of it. Um, a lot of it is time and effort necessary too. let's just face it. Um, the typical person is more concerned about, you know, taking care of their family than pouring hours and hours into, you know, fundraising for candidates and managing campaigns and and things like that. So it's a combination of a lot of things, but this is hard work. It never won't be. And, you know, the founding fathers laid down their lives, fortunes, and sacred honors. Um, very much so if you read about the history of some of the, the signers of that document. Um, so, you know, that's what it takes. Oh yeah. And then, and that's one of the things, um, you know, one of the first things I remember learning about uh, sort of after the mainstream education that I had uh, in early America was, um, you know, just how many of the the people that signed that document ended up uh, ended up losing multiple, uh, you, you know, either they either lost their life and their fortune and or they lost their fortune and their sacred honor or whatever it was. Um, th- th- there was actually very few of them, um, a very select few who who didn't lose almost everything uh, by the time the, the war was over. Um, Dave, I think you're doing great work. I think um you know, again, the, the your presence on Twitter, all of the stuff that you write, uh, the books that you're writing, the work you've done um, with with the Mises Institute as well. Um, just let everyone know where they can find your stuff, where they can find your books, how they can follow you, and 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 all that stuff. Yeah, thanks, Eric. So to get my two book, two main books, you can go to davidbenner.square.site. That's davidbenner.square.site. Um, I also have a webpage. It's kind of my central hub, www.davebenner.com, where I feature my articles there. Um, you can check out my articles at 10th Amendment Center and the Mises Institute. I've also contributed to the Abbeville Institute and a few other publications, but um, would really enjoy it if uh, some of your listeners picked up my books. If not, don't feel obligated, but also uh, track me down on Twitter at dbenner83 and also LP National. So. Well, I'm going to pick up a copy of the uh, the Thomas Paine book for sure. So I definitely encourage all of you listening to pick it up. Dave really knows what he's talking about. Um, and man, I really appreciate you coming on. It's been such a great conversation. I hope uh, I'll have a chance to talk to you again sometime in the future. Thanks, Eric. Huge pleasure. Hope we can uh, do this again. And great luck on the podcast. And keep those pizzas coming, man. They look good. <laughs> Thank, thanks, Dave. I appreciate it. <laughs> Thank you, sir. This is the Just Listening Podcast. I got to go. Go oh, where? We just got it. I got that thing. I gotta go. With pizza artist Eric John. Uh, wait a couple of minutes. We'll all leave together, okay? This way you don't go out like a bunch of hobos staggering out one at a time. Please like, share, and subscribe.